While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. We should call people jabronis, though. Because <laughs> think okay. about it. It's not It's not like a cuss, but it's not like it's you're not calling them stupid or something like what it's it it's, it's a unique enough. Im, it's a unique enough insult to make somebody pause and be like, did you just call me a jabroni? What's a jabroni? What is a jabroni? Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast <laughs> about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Jabroni. My name is Andrew. A jobless loser, says Urban <laughs> Dictionary. Um, a loser, poser. One who talks the talk but could never walk the walk. This is all from Urban Dictionary. <laughs> I like words that are defined with idioms. That's pretty good. Like the third definition is says jabroni is really an Italian profanity. Really? Yeah. That's funny because the rock is like Samoan or something. <laughs> Number f- the fourth definition is put down used by wrestler the rock. And the example, <laughs> they use it in a sentence. Shut your mouth, jabroni. <laughs> uh, to get high-minded wrestling fan about this, I wonder if jabroni... Uh, is like a slant dig on people being jobbers. Do you know what a jobber is, Andrew? I thought you were going to say a slant dig on people being bronies, but no, I don't. <laughs> no. What's a jobber? <laughs> a jobber is someone who is supposed to go out there and lose. Like they are a like a low tier wrestler. Oh, okay. Who's like their job is to go out there and get beat so people like The Rock look good. So when The Rock is like getting famous. He needs to beat up a bunch of no-name people who are jobbers. Are they faces or heels yet, or are they just no. like, just grist for the wrestling mill? Yeah, you're not even supposed <laughs> okay. to really remember their name. <laughs> this is a show about uh, wrestling, specifically <laughs> wrestling from the late 90s and early 2000s. The Attitude Era, uh, if you want to be specific. Yeah, I could, we could do I a wrestling no podcast. Idea. You I, did not, I didn't know that there was a... That there were like wrestling epochs, like I did. <laughs> I don't know what we're in right now, uh, but wrestling's in a weird place right now where like the internet exists, so mm-hmm. the whole like being in on it thing is uh, part of watching wrestling. It's like it's you know, wrestling was already a soap opera, but that whole part where people go to the supermarket and buy soap opera mags to like know what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. I don't think that used to be as big of a thing in wrestling as it is now. Okay. Like now you're always like, what are the writers going to come up with next? And by writers, you mean like guys tossing cards with finishing moves on, in a hat and seeing what happens next. I, I think, think for our for our age group right now, the wrestling era that we're in is remember wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> remember when everybody watched wrestling? And everyone goes, yeah, I think I've heard of John Cena. And then the conversation ends. So each week, one of us reads a book. And we talk about it with the other person who may or may not have read that book. And you, the listener, get to derive some sort of benefit from it, if you so choose. you jabronis. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Andrew, what did you read this week? Um, I read The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. Do you mean Anne Jabronte? No, I mean Anne Bronte. Okay. Check your hearing. (laughs) There wasn't going to be a good time to use that in the rest of the show, so I decided to get it out of the way now. You should have waited for it. You should have just bided your time. Um, All right. So to, to... Read about Anne Bronte or any of the Brontes is to read about all of them, is is what I discovered when I was doing my research for this. Yeah, there was a comment I read about the Bronte sisters that they, as a literary group, like, you know, authors sometimes get grouped into different, like, schools or who they were contemporaries of or who their influences were. 
And there's really no predecessor or successor that is a direct line to the sisters because mm-hmm. of their life and their particular careers. Yeah. They were pretty um, cloistered as far as authors go. Right, yeah, and so, some more than others. Um, and I, I do want to point out, I'd say Bronte, you say Bronte. I believe both are actually correct. Um, well, because it's derived from a an Irish name that their father had, Pat, and... I don't know how it was originally pronounced, but he kind of changed the spelling of it. I think it was Bron. He might have had a Y at the end of it originally. Maybe. Um, and then Patrick Bronte or Bronte uh, changed it. His original name was Bronte, so B-R-U-N-T-Y. Yeah. All right. So we were all saying it wrong. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, she was the youngest of um of of her of all the brontes there were um six six five um, six sounds correct maria elizabeth um, maria and elizabeth who both died during childhood yeah there were six uh, maria and elizabeth and then um charlotte um emily and anne who are the you know the trio that you normally talk about and then um their brother um branwell bronte Patrick Branwell. Yes, his first name is his Patrick, but he's usually called Branwell when when he's brought up. And yeah, um, so Charlotte wrote um, Jane Eyre. That's she wrote four novels, I think, and that was her most famous. Um, Emily wrote Wuthering Heights, and that was her only novel that she wrote before she died. And then um, Anne wrote um, Tenant of Wildfell Hall and one other Agnes Gray, which was her first one. And yeah, they're. Their literary history is interesting, right? Because they they all read a lot, mm-hmm. and they all kind of started writing when Branwell brought these like little toy soldiers into them, and they all started playing with them and like coming up with these increasingly convoluted like fantasy worlds. Yeah, which I thought was super cool. <laughs> lived in, yeah. Um, Did you do that as a kid, Andrew? Did you have like fake literary universes that you created? Whole cloth? I had. Like serialized Lego dramas that yeah that I had. Usually, my favorite my favorite Legos were Night Legos and Space Legos. So usually there would be like dimensional portal portals involved. Yes, that sounds and the, reasonable. The knights were way better than they should have been at fighting space <laughs> robots. <laughs> it's funny that we spent the opening of this show talking about wrestling because there was a definitely a period of time where I just had elaborate wrestling matches with all my legos and they were like storylines and everything faces and there were no jobbers because they were all famous enough to be faces or heels right well because you didn't get that many little minifigs you only had like i don't know between half a dozen and a dozen and so they all had to be significant somehow yeah that is correct that is correct i don't know most of my time was just spent trying to track down shields that matched so all the sides would be clearly delineated from one another in case someone came along and said what is yeah right <laughs> um, so i guess for the for the sake of of limiting the scope of this bronte discussion we'll focus on the three sisters mm-hmm. um charlotte emily and anne and that's that's their order from oldest to youngest um they all wrote books in the late 1840s that uh, were published under these male pen names so Kerr bell was charlotte um Ellis Bell was Emily, and then Acton Bell was Anne. Yes. And they all retained their first initials, but um, decided that being being men or being thought of as male would increase their likelihood of getting published and also incre- increase the degree to which critics took them seriously. Man, I'm having a great time talking this week. You're doing just fine. Yeah, well, it started with a collection of poetry in... 18 somewhere in the 1840s um, 1846 1846 the thank po- you poems by Kerr ellis and acton bell how many copies do you think that book sold in its first run well there are three people in the title so three at least no it just sold two. Oh no <laughs> they didn't buy their own book i would come on <laughs> and my and especially if i published it under a pseudonym so then i would i would buy it and be like oh what's this Great book of poems by Christian Gray. No, so, that's not another pseudonym I would no. use. Uh, so you're saying you would go down to the Walden Books and find your book and talk loudly about 
how good you had heard that it was. Well, if in the, the year hopes is, that someone in the bookstore would hear you talking about, yeah, it. assuming that it is 1994 and there are still Walden books, that is this exactly is a, yeah, what yeah. This I would is do. our 90s time jump cast <laughs> where we talk about Walden books and The Rock. I bet I could find Mick Foley's book at a Walden books. <laughs> Probably so. So um, they published this collection of poetry. And they published then... this collection of poetry. It did not do super well, but undeterred, they all continued writing. Um, Jane Eyre was probably the biggest and most immediate contemporary success that any of the three of them had. Mm-hmm. Um, and but uh, man, I said I felt prepared for this, and I do. But it's like there's so there's, there's a too lot. much information, right? Because usually we're talking about one author instead of like a million authors. Well, and that's um, tricky. We we can keep kind of riffing on this because. I feel bad, actually, as I was reading about Anne Bronte, like so much of the literature on her, even just like brief internet, like biography stuff, you have to grapple with the other Bronte sisters. Like you can't study them biographically in a vacuum, or at least not not a lot of people have, and certainly not with Anne. Yeah, Um, I mean, there there are a lot of different like interconnected issues there, like. So for um for Wildfell Hall, there's some speculation that you know her, their their brother um, Branwell got into some not great stuff in his nope. in his later life. He was kind of an alcoholic and couldn't hold down a job. And um, there's a character like that in this book who we'll talk about in a little bit. And you know it's it's commonly thought that you know there's there's some small part of Branwell in Arthur Huntington. Hunting done with a D. With, with Emily, uh, Charlotte ended up writing a lot of what we know about her. Mm. So, every, so a lot of what we know about Emily's character is given to us by her sister in the years immediately following her death. Well, no, she was the first of the three to pass. Right, she was the first of the three. Well, the three sisters to pass. That's yeah, what she I mean. Got, yeah, yeah. She got ill at Branwell's funeral. Died yes. three months after him, and then Anne died five months after that. I think some within the year at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, yeah. Within eight months, three of the three of the Brontes had died, and they had already lost. You know, the two eldest sisters. Well, and I wanted to childhood. go back to that when you mentioned it because when uh, it's Maria and Elizabeth or Mary and Elizabeth, um, I believe it's Maria. Uh, they died after, or they got sick after attending uh, a school where they contracted tuberculosis and then right. died. And I know that that was why for several years, the rest of the sisters were basically homeschooled. I know they went off to other schools at various times and and studied, but they certainly got the bulk of their initial education at home uh, after they lost their two older sisters, mm-hmm. which, I mean, kind of probably leads to a lot of the interconnectedness that we're grappling with right yeah. now. And so the thing about Anne as an individual, I guess, it's like mm-hmm. to, to narrow in on her a little bit, Please. is that she's overshadowed some compared to Charlotte and Emily because Charlotte lived the longest and was writing for the longest. Um, and you know, she was the she was the most successful at the time, I think, and that, you know, that yeah. had something to do with it. And then Charlotte wrote a lot about Emily after she died. Mm-hmm. And so we've got a lot about both of those, but when it came time to publish another run of Wildfell Hall, you know, after Anna died, Charlotte was in control of her estate and she elected not to publish the book again. Well, and she had publicly she, said, she, yeah, she, she didn't care the, for it. Yeah, she considered the subject matter to be uncouth, which is another thing we can talk about. Because, yeah, this is this is the middle of the 19th century and the main themes of this book are, you know, a woman who runs away from her husband and wants to divorce him because he's a big alcoholic. And guess how many of those things you talked about in public in the middle of the 19th century? <laughs> um, three of them. Yeah, I was going to guess. You couldn't possibly be more wrong. Than oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to, every time you ask me a, a guess, I'm just going to say three. So just That's be a aware. good, yeah, this is bubbling and see, man. Going to get uh, one of them right. <laughs> Well, and the other thing to put this in context, when I was reading about Wildfell Hall, the the like historical nugget that kept coming up 
was the Married Women's Property Act of 1870. Did you read about that at all, Andrew? Um, I read of it. You know, I the I read about that, but I didn't dig any further into that particular act. Well, just that uh, in England, prior to this act being put through in the 18, in 1870, any property that a woman owned prior to her marriage or earned during her marriage, including her kids, became the property of her husband, just like right. flat out. Yeah. No rights. Yeah, and there's a there's a section of this book where you you know the the wife runs away from her husband and then is supporting herself by selling art and technically that you know that should have been her husband's money that that yes. she got through through selling that so yeah it's at the time it, it was considered coarse I guess is the word I kept running into <laughs> mm, yeah and so it's, it's an accusation just... that some people leveled at some of Charlotte's work too but um. I don't know. I feel like, and there probably is, I'd have to Google for it. I feel like there's like a run of Kate Beaton comics or something in (laughs) Charlotte being like passive aggressive about Anne's work. (laughs) Okay. Well, and both, um, both Charlotte and Emily are kind of classified as romantic writers, writers of the romantic age. And Mm -hmm. Anne is kind of, people have since wedged her off as something else. Um, a little more moralistic, a little more blatantly feminist, even. Um, so, and I don't know, and I will confess, I have not read a, a Bronte book at all. So we're gonna have to come back to all all three of these sisters yeah. at some point. Yeah, this is my very first Bronte book, and yeah, it's it's I guess considered to be one of the mo- one of the first sustained feminist novels. It, and sustained feminist novel, I, I take it to mean that it is it takes that perspective throughout rather than just having elements of it that pop up here and there. Or like a character that represents that point of view and is quickly shunted out of the book because no one can handle it. Yeah. yeah, Like any of these, any of these 19th century um, female authors that you run into. So, you know, the Brontes, um, Jane Austen, I think you'd probably find feminist seeds in any of it. Right. Yeah. Well, at least, you know, to the extent that they all sort of deal with the, facts of life at the time which were that you had to find a husband and get married to him and they all um they all end up with people getting married but they take kind of circuitous routes like they definitely have something to say beyond just telling that story you know well yeah and and we kind of talked about this a little bit when we read when i read uh kate chopin's the awakening which is an american book from 30 or 40 years after uh the passing of the brontes um so she certainly owes something to Anne, i'm sure which we can talk about after we get to the Mm -hmm. book um but just where we are you know there's that increasing discussion of universal suffrage and uh just the marriage act that i mentioned earlier is kind of a step towards that because one of the you know suffrage is largely has previously been, you know, kind of gated by whether or not you owned any property. Um, and once those property laws start to become more equal, then uh, suffrage is usually not far behind. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the book, Andrew. We've talked, we try to keep this narrow in scope and we just keep going out into Bronte land. So <laughs> there's, I mean, there's just, I read a lot, like I read a lot of stuff about all three of them and about Branwell too. And it's, um, it's an interesting stream to dip your toe into. Like I, at this point, um, people have suggested both Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre to us, and I think we are, you know, I think we were always going to get around to them, um, depending on how long the show ran. But now I, <laughs> now I feel more, uh, now I feel more inclined to like actively seek them out, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about before we got into the book was this painting of a uh, Charlotte, Emily, and Anne that Branwell did. He had originally painted himself into it as well, but then he painted himself out. I don't know if you saw this picture. No, I didn't. While you were researching around, I'll have to post it or something. But yeah, he painted himself out using this like column of of light, but you can still see his silhouette. So it kind of looks like he's being beamed up to the Enterprise. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, no. And it's like bending his head. What is that? I don't know. Oh, man. They don't, and they're they don't even notice. They're no, unaware. They're, they're, he's behind them, so <laughs> they don't see him yet. Branwell, 
<laughs> Where do you want to start with this book? Um, let's run down the plot synopsis, I guess. Well, like, what? who is the tenant and what is Wildfell Hall? All right, Wildfell Hall is this old hall that's been uninhabited <laughs> for a while. Is it haunted? What? It's not haunted. It's just been, un- it's, it just hasn't been lived in for a bit. Okay. And the tenant of same is a <laughs> woman named Helen Graham who, okay. who takes up residence in a couple of the rooms with her young son, Arthur. And the entire little community is all a, a Twitter about her and what she's doing there. She's kind of reclusive. She's a little odd. Like they have her to some parties and things sometimes because if you recall, you know, early to mid um, 19th century, England is all like landed gentry sitting around and drinking ale and just talking about if, each other yes if that if that's the class that you're in so she's in that class because she right, lives at yes, a hall yeah 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 okay um so yeah there's there's this guy gilbert markham who we get the first i guess third and then the last bit of the book from the perspective of um he's you know he's this is in the form it's it's an epistolary novel i guess because he's writing letters to somebody do we know we, who he's writing letters to? Um, he or someone him unimportant. A few times, but we never actually meet him at any point, so it's not it's not super important. Kind of like yeah, kind of like how in Frankenstein, that guy's just writing letters to his sister or whatever. It's like all right, cool. Like I guess he's writing to some reader surrogate figure who doesn't factor into the story at all. Yeah. Okay. So he relays um, Helen moving into this place, and initially, like butting heads with her a few times you know, having these arguments or, or conversations or things, but then gradually becoming like infatuated with her. How old is she? Um you she, said she had a son. She had a son. She's um I want to say like mid to late twenties is the okay. age we're talking about. So, you know, for the time getting up there in years. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but not yet so old that, you know, she was beyond like childbearing or, or marriage or, or whatever. Is she a widow? Is she Here's the thing is yes, yeah, she is she tells everybody that she's a widow. Oh. And that she's there with her son and just trying to just trying to get along and like get over her husband being dead. And so Gilbert starts pursuing her and she obviously likes him, but she will not make their relationship romantic. Like she'll and play he, cards with him. Right, and she's like, okay, t- so to to put it in modern terms that are still stupid, she put <laughs> he he feels like she's friend zoning him. Okay, that's I hate and that he, term. And he takes the tack. I hate it too. I think it's it's terrible, stupid. Doesn't exist. He takes the tack where he's like, "Well, all right, I guess we'll just be friends." And then privately to himself, he thinks, "Okay, if I could just stay friends with her for a while, then <sighs> I can make her like me." And it'll be totally great. Uh, is he 16? Is he wearing an Invader Zim shirt? Like, what is he? <laughs> no, he's just a he's just a man of marrying age in 19th century England, which is basically <laughs> like 20 to 75, right? Like, you can marry whoever you want. Yeah, men men have a pretty good like just in general. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, what very astute of you. I'm so Thanks. glad that you learned that from the Brontes. That's a good that's a good observation I made. So he's he eventually goes to her he goes to Wildfell Hall, the building of which she is the tenant, and okay. says, I know you I know you have feelings for me. I have feelings for you. Can you not explain to me like why why this can't happen? And she's like, Okay, okay, do come back tomorrow. <laughs> And I'll tell you all what's going down. Okay. And he's like, okay, finally. And then he's like, oh man, I need to see her again. So before he goes home, he sneaks back and hides in the bushes. And he sees her being affectionate with this guy, Mr. Lawrence. Uh-huh. And previously the town gossips had been speculating that Mr. Lawrence was in fact Arthur's father. Mm. Because mm. they had like a similar kind of look about them. And he... Um, I guess visited her at Wildfell Hall like more times than would be considered appropriate, which I guess is any times. Yeah. 
in the 19th century just like any times at all yeah without some explicit pretense or without other people being there like it's kind of funny the the extent to which he will like (laughs) like if he wants to go see her he'll go under the pretense of like giving her a book or something and so once he actually tracks down and buys this book that he thinks she'll like and then one time he just grabs this like ratty book off the shelf and (laughs) takes it over there I thought you'd like this garbage I found. I saw this garbage and I thought of you. And I saw I had this to painting of a dog and I thought of, I thought you might like it. <laughs> Did you just say that because I texted you a painting of a dog that I saw in a rest stop over the uh, weekend? You can't prove anything. So he, you know, he sees her and Lawrence together, and he's like, "Oh man, I've been played for a fool. She likes this guy. I, I." got all mad i got all indignant on her behalf and she's actually seeing this guy anyway she's terrible and he tries to ignore her for a while and then they meet up again and she's like why didn't you come back i had some stuff i was gonna say to you and he was like i saw you with mr lawrence and i know that you are with him and she's like dude you don't know the whole story and she tears out some pages of a diary and he goes home and reads them okay so like the middle 50 percent of the book from chapter 16 to chapter 44 is all basically from Helen's perspective through in this first person diary. Um, yes. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then it's, you, you don't change your, you don't change how you're reading the book because it's still a letter being written to somebody. In this case, the somebody is dear diary, but yeah, but that's reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Right. So she details this this story where, all right, it starts with her as a young woman, like 18-ish, so just like the early side of being marriageable, and she's trying to find a man, and mm-hmm. her aunt tells her, don't marry an idiot. <laughs> don't marry some jerko. Okay. Good job, aunt. And she's like, okay, aunt, I got this. Don't worry about it. <laughs> And she, you know, she spurns a couple of suitors who she thinks is boring or are boring. And, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think these guys is boring. I think these fellers is boring, Auntie. <laughs> Get out of my room. What? <laughs> I don't know. But she meets this guy named Arthur Huntingdon, who she thinks is just swell. Okay, what's so very, great about him? He's like... A, light on his feet and like witty i guess he's good at dancing and good at telling jokes that's all you need so she that's me by the way she is just over the moon about this this feller okay and even though auntie says he's not what he seems like i really don't think you should do this she decides she's gonna get married to him and it's it's foreshadowed pretty early that this is not gonna go great so like She's pining after after him from afar for a little while, and and she you know she's an artist as as, as we previously established, mm-hmm. and she draws little pictures of him, you know just as she's thinking about him. It's a kind of love struck teenagery thing to do. And he finds one of these drawings, and he kind of just makes fun of her about it. No, it's like ha ha, you love me, like that kind of thing. Oh, like he negged her. I guess, yeah. Ugh. Oh, you love me so much you drew a picture of we're me. Just, Great. We're reframing all of this in like crappy pickup artist terms Ugh. from from now times. It's the game all over again. <laughs> you just lost the game. Oh, no. Did it again. Got you again. <laughs> so, okay, real quick, because <laughs> I don't want to talk about that anymore. Um, is it laid out that like, she needs to get married for a particular reason, or is it just she's of the age and she's on the look because that is what you do to get by? Yeah, it's more or less the done thing, you know? Okay. It's not like she's, it's not like her family's in a bad way and she needs to get married to prevent, you know, being in the poorhouse forever. But no, her family's actually fairly well off. Um, it's just, it's just what you do when you're 18 and a woman. And you live in the society as you get married to some guy. Okay. And you got to find a good one so that you are you have agency in your life and are not treated terribly. Or just so you don't end up in the gutter somewhere. 
Uh, yes. Either <laughs> that's way. Kind of, that's what I meant. Okay. You could have said that then. Well, I didn't want to be so explicit and coarse about it. Sorry. We're going to get coarse all up in here. Uh-oh. So their marriage progresses, and it gets, it's just, it's all straight down the hill from there. Like, he goes off to London for business, you know, business. Oh, <laughs> like a business, business time? Trip. Like one like, of those business trips where you take your wedding ring off because you're a scuzz bag, and then you just run around town acting like you're single. I've, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I've not I've not done that myself, but I'm I'm talking about the again stereotypical things that is this what that up in the air do. movie was about? Yes, is that true? I, I never seen, saw that movie. I haven't seen that movie in a while. So <laughs> <laughs> that's the first movie I thought of when you said business trip. So he's in London for business, <laughs> and he's away for. Like months, literally months, and he's sending her letters. Well, it was like uh, year fifty, right? The only way he had to get there was like the back of a dog or something, right? Yeah, what he rode a dog. He rode a dog up to London, Craig. <laughs> up to London or down? What part of England are they I living in? I don't know. Yeah, got you. It's you it's one of those things where London. every location in the book is just a first letter with a blank after it. <laughs> you know, you've read those books, right? Uh huh. Um, so he's lying to her basically and he comes back from London finally like months later and he's just, he's not in a good way. He's he's not healthy and it just, the way the book makes it sound is like he has a hangover that lasts for like weeks. Oh no. (laughs) And she nurses him back to health and she's like, oh, if only I can, if only I can change him basically is the thrust of it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if only I can I can convince him to to forgo this stuff. I know that the goodness in him can come out or, or okay. whatever it is. But after a couple more years of this where he's kind of steadily gets worse and then, you know, they have a kid and he's in the picture. It's just it becomes clear to her slowly but surely that this is not going to this is not going great. And then. Eventually, she catches him in the shrubbery getting down with someone else's wife. Oh, no. And the here's the one thing about this book that made me really sad is that he is cheating on his wife with somebody else's wife, but it's framed as though it is Helen's fault. Oh, like he like blames Helen? her for it. Oh, like if you if you okay. weren't so if you weren't so frigid and like insisting on me bettering myself all the time, like I wouldn't have to run off into someone some other lady's arms. And she kind of feels bad about it. Oh, that's uh, like she gets over those, that eventually. Yeah, no, yeah, but that's one of those things like that happens in relationships where, unfortunately, it's on a spectrum with all sorts of other feelings. Like it's it is cut and dry in that like. He cheated, right? But the the feelings that she might be having of like guilt are they're not invalid, but like you said, they're just sad, right? It's like it's a shame that you that people in relationships can end up feeling that way, especially yeah, they, yeah. in a relationship at in this time where like it's so one sided, it's all it's so stacked against her as it is, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, so, I mean, he can basically do whatever he wants legally. Yeah, I guess. And she has no recourse. Like, she can't leave him. She can't strike out on her own. She certainly can't take her kid with her because it would have been considered kidnapping. Like, it literally would have been considered kidnapping. Precisely. As you were describing that that law to me, I realized that I had read a little bit more about it than I I thought I had. Than you led on? Yeah. You coy dog. I know. Secrets upon secrets over here. But yeah, when like if a woman who is married to a guy left him and took the kid, it was considered kidnapping. <laughs> Think about Man, that for a minute. Uh, yeah, there's no sense of there's no sense of like custody as we understand it, you know. 
No, and she like retains no property and no autonomy and no anything. Like it's it's just a sucky situation all around. Well, and that that's it's like you look back at the history of what marriages were and were for. Like where this book is written in that transition period, I suppose, where it's not just about like heirs and dowries. But if you think about it, like that's what kids were. It's like here's the next person that is gonna. Uh, if it's a if it's a man, then they're expected to be an heir potentially, um, and own some of the land and earn money for the family. And women in that position, the whole dowry system was like, well, then I'm going to marry you to someone good, and then that's going to reflect well in our family and perhaps give us things. You know, yeah. There's no sense of like her going out and like bringing anything back because as soon as she gets married, all that stuff goes to that guy. <sighs> I hate the past. <laughs> I kind of hate the future because we don't have hoverboards, but I hate the past. I feel yeah. Like, <laughs> weigh those two things on your on your little your little moral scale. There, hoverboards, complete subservience of women to men. Like, what do you? Which one's worse? <laughs> or come back next week. <laughs> <laughs> She eventually screws herself up to leave with the help of um, her maid, Rachel, who is who is actually, I don't know, you don't spend much time with Rachel, but she's like, you know, that stout servant who is always by your side. And she's got her lady's back. Yeah. All right. Like she, she knew Arthur Huntington was, was bad. Okay. A while before, like, she she had discovered that he was cheating on on Helen for a while before Helen did. And she's not armed with "I told you so's," but she's got no. She's just Helen's like, back. Yeah, yeah. Right. She's like very sad for Helen. Okay. Um, and willing to go with her and and take care of her, even though you know there's probably not very much money in her money in it for her. So what's Helen's plan? Like, what is she gonna do? Helen's got this brother. Um, who has a hall, a certain vacant hall. Interesting. That he can spruce up for her. Okay. And so he goes about that, and then one night she goes. And then, and, the, and there's some suspense. Like, she, he discovers her diary and discovers that she's trying, she's thinking about leaving and saving money and, and, takes all of her money and and just tries to keep her from going but eventually she she gets out hmm. and she escapes and she cool. makes it she makes it to Wildfell Hall and the brother who helped her get Wildfell Hall already was none other than Mr. Lawrence so mind trap ah, mind he trap. was her brother all along wait she was making out with her brother no she wasn't making out with him she was just like being, being affectionate yeah like like hand on the shoulder kind of affectionate oh okay yeah well Which then yeah in okay. in 19th century england a you know a casual observer hiding in the shrubs outside your house <laughs> might take that to imply more than it does yeah i think it up until 1828 in england if you high five someone you had to get married that's it's what i read like you're not supposed to high five before marriage anyway right well, depends on where you grew up, I suppose. Well, well definitely. On the East Coast, definitely. on the East Just, Coast, you could high five. If you're going to do it, if you're going to high five, use protection. <laughs> Wear mittens. <laughs> Wear mittens. Don't, and like, like get Don't to know use them the first. the too slow method. <laughs> oh. That whoa. Ne- <laughs> never protected anybody. Whoa. And like, get to know them first. You know, don't just don't like just high five everyone. Don't just be you don't want to be the town five who just runs down <laughs> lines with everybody holding their hands out. Andrew, I heard that kids are high fiving in middle school now. Oh no. Oh what no. is this world called? I hate the uh, future. They go out behind the they go out behind the gymnasium and high five each other. <laughs> Did you see Bobby? He was high fiving under the bleachers. I caught mommy high five in Santa Claus. <laughs> That's what you're supposed to do under the mistletoe. Yep. <laughs> I've been doing it wrong. High five. <laughs> Christmas. Woo! Christmas. What were we talking about? Um, 
her brother was the guy mind trap yeah so at that point basically we go back to um, markham's perspective and he's like well i did bad yeah i read i read that one wrong that one's on me (laughs) sorry Sorry about that. And he goes back to her and is like, hey, I'm, I'm kind of sorry for all that stuff that I said and did. <laughs> because, and he doesn't tell Helen this, and Lawrence doesn't tell Helen this, but in the interim between seeing Helen and Lawrence together and him confronting her and like getting these diary pages from her, he hit Lawrence in the face with a whip. Whoa. <laughs> And Whoa. knocked him off his horse. This guy sounds awesome. He's like... Markham knows what's up. Given Arthur Huntington, Markham yeah. is an okay guy. He looks pretty good by comparison. And well, like, well, okay, here's here's a line of his. And this is this is one of the things that I think people are thinking of when they talk about this book as a as a feminist book. Okay. Um and he's having he's having Markham is having a conversation with his mother and his sister um talking about marriage and how you're i guess you're supposed to find a woman who makes you happy and like devotes herself to making you happy and that's okay. like what marriage is supposed to be um and Markham says, I was not sent into the world merely to exercise the good capacities and good feelings of others, was I? But to exert my own towards them. And when I marry, I shall expect to find more pleasure in making my wife happy and comfortable than in being made so by her. I would rather give than receive. And then his mom says to him, oh, that's all nonsense, my dear. It's mere boys talk that. You'll soon tire of petting and humoring your wife, be she ever so charming. And then comes the trial. Oh, no. So Markham is, I guess, for his time, pretty progressive in that when he marries somebody, he wants to make her happy. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Uh, so, so he's not he's not perfect. He's jealous and he's petty sometimes and and he prone to cartoonish violence. Prone to cartoonish violence, prone to prejudgment of of people. Prone sometimes. to hiding in shrubbery. Prone to yeah, prone to to ducking down in the shrubs, <laughs> but not that bad. Not that bad. Ultimately, an All okay guy. Considered, yeah. So so does that work out? He he and Helen have another conversation, and she says, "You know this this nothing can happen because my husband is still alive." Huh. And. She says, you know, we really shouldn't see each other anymore. And like maybe in six months or something, you can talk to my brother and we can start like writing each other letters. And he professes his undying love and that he'll never get get tired of of loving her and thinking about her. Then he finds out that she has gone back to Arthur. Oh, because he like got he hurt himself and then like the wound itself was not very serious, but because he's an alcoholic jerko who doesn't take care of himself he made it way worse yeah okay and eventually he dies with helen by his side and he never is really redeemed though he comes to rely on her and maybe appreciate her a little in a way that he didn't when they were married in a way that she kind of had wanted him to the whole time yeah, but from what you're saying, it, it doesn't sound like he's piecing it together and, like, creating an arc of, you know... Of redemption. Under, no, of and redemption. He, he literally yeah. is is not redeemed. Like, she's... And, and this is something we didn't talk about when we talked about the Brontes, but um, Anne was very... You know, she was very religious, Yeah, I guess, and that informed some of her some of her viewpoint. Well, and their father was a, a pastor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so Helen is trying to get Arthur to to Arthur man Arthur not Arthur the child yeah um to repent and 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 see the folly of his ways and I guess devote his life to to being less of a less of a bad person and he so can that- he can never quite get there yeah. like even once he realizes even once he starts admitting that he was not a great guy he still can't really get to the point where he 
thinks that God will forgive him or where he even believes that it's a thing. Yeah. And so he dies. He dies like that, basically. Like not, not totally in the dark about what he had done, but also not, you know, not a redeemed character. Hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, of course. Um, and so there, there's a there's a little bit more um, of an interlude where there are just a few um, conversations between Markham and Helen that don't quite get started. Uh, a few misconnections, I guess. And then he hears that she's getting married to somebody. You living in Wildfell Hall. Me hiding in a shrub. <laughs> I saw you. Putting your high fiving a guy who looked vaguely like you, but probably just because you love each other so much, I'm jealous. I'm gonna knock him off a horse. Call me. Call me. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually, he rides out to. She's staying with her aunt because her uncle had died recently, and she's kind of helping. She's kind of helping her aunt out. And he goes up there to stop the stop the wedding, and finds out that it was Lawrence getting married all along. And that Helen is still just kind of hanging out, being widowed, like, like actually, do. actually widowed this time, not fake widowed like not she fake was before. <laughs> and uh, eventually, they they get they stop talking past each other and realize that they both like each other a lot, and they get married and have kids, and it's actually a very happy ending. It made me it made me smile. Oh, good! I was very happy at the end. Good. Um. And that's basically it. That's the tenant of the hall. So, what? Okay, so you liked it. I did, and I I texted you about this, and I don't I don't want to get like into it because <laughs> I feel like every time we've done an Austin episode, I think we've get, gotten messages saying that we're missing the point, which maybe probably. But yeah. um, I I like this a lot better than I like the Austin book that I read. Can you Pride, Pride and quantify why? I can't quite because I'm not sure if I like it better because I like it better. Like if it's a better book or if, if it's because I think it's a better book or if it's because I was more in like I, I knew the universe I was stepping into more intimately. You know, like I, I already had gotten down these concepts of of the landed gentry so i kind of understood the class i understood their motivations i understood what they were trying to do like i think when we talked about pride and prejudice some people um criticism probably isn't the the right word because i don't think it was that strong but people said people wondered whether we'd missed the point because i i think i said that all these people just talking about marriage all the time was silly Uh uh-huh and it's you know it it I think it is kind of silly, but it was also like how life was lived at the time. Well, and and we talked about we got we got plenty of great comments about whether or not Austin thought it was silly as right. well. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. which we didn't do as as thorough of a job discussing on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, so you felt better prepared coming into this guy. Uh, I did, but- and if I if I went back to another Austin book with the same preparedness and read it again, like I don't know, you know, would I like it better? Would I like it more? I don't know. But yeah, all in all, my impression of this book is more positive, and like we said earlier, it makes me want to read more Bronte stuff. Um, not because I mean, because Anne has the one other novel and some poems and stuff, but this is this is pretty much it as far as as she goes like this is her biggest thing yeah it's the other book is agnes gray right, right. is that her other yeah. book yeah, yeah. and that's largely about her experience as a governess her first experience as a governess which she hated yeah right it did uh, not go well so i sounds like that would be an interesting read just to explore that world a little bit more because that's like a thing that doesn't exist anymore governesses yeah, in an explicit right. way. So to Yeah, I guess of, like a like a nanny or something would be the closest. Yeah, but thing you but, could find, but even then like it's a fraction of what a governess was supposed to do. Like a governess yeah. is like your teacher plus your aunt plus like Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she lives in your house while you go away and do landed gentry things. Yeah, like she becomes part of the family if if it goes well. <laughs> 
if you're like if you play your cards right well yeah and my experience with that is reading turn of the screw so maybe your nanny is crazy and or haunted and things are terrible so good luck governesses coming this fall on the cw haunted nanny haunted nanny um do you think uh, your appreciation of this one had anything to do with it being like first-person epistolary? Because Jane Austen was revolutionary in her time for that kind of close third-person. I'm really f- I'm forgetting the term. Uh, oh, I don't remember what it is. Um, but that kind of over-the-shoulder peek into somebody's head, real easy voice was pretty remarkable for its time. And this seems to adhere more directly to the you know first person i don't know if it was so much that though um jane jane Eyre, um in particular i think was noted at the time for that first that immediate first person perspective that really caught a lot of reviewers you know again that's you have to you have to be careful about conflating all the brontes because we we are doing it already kind of is where you talk about all of the sisters collective works as if it comes out of one mind or like it comes out of one well, it comes but from people, one perspective, I guess. I mean, people thought that it did. It's worth talking about that. You know, they had to go. Charlotte and Anne went to London to prove that there were three of them, not just one. And everyone thought, you know, the prevailing opinion at the time was that the real one was Ellis Bell, uh, who people may or may not have kn- known was Emily at all. Yeah, that. I mean, I guess um, we can close with a. Uh, Something in the second edition of Wildfell Hall, Anne wrote a small foreword um, that addressed some of the criticisms that I think it got in the first place. Yeah. And um, she writes some interesting things about, about, you know, her identity and about, you know, books being written by men or women. And I, I think I'll just read this whole chunk because I, it's good. Like this, um, this particular edition of it is um free from the kindle store and it's oh, not cool. perfect like when you get these books free from the kindle store you're always kind of rolling the dice like you're, you're probably going to run into some weird like scanning errors or something so every <laughs> once in a while you'll find like page one buried in a paragraph somewhere like it's, it was obviously <laughs> grabbed from a header or footer and transposed poorly yeah yeah but um it's it's free and it's it's mostly fine so you really owe it to yourself to download it and at least read this forward that she had written because it's interesting um so she says one word more and i have done respecting the author's identity i would have it to be directly i would have it to be distinctly understood that acton bell is neither currer nor ellis bell and therefore let not his faults be attributed to them as to whether the name be real or fictitious, it cannot greatly signify to those who know him only by his works. As little, I should think, can it matter whether the writer so designated is a man or a woman as one or two of my critics profess to have discovered. I take the imputation in good part as a compliment to the just delineation of my female characters, and though I am bound to attribute much of the severity of my censors to this suspicion, I make no effort to refute it, because in my own mind I am satisfied that if a book is a good one, it is so, whatever the sex of the author may be. All novels are, or should be, written for both men and women to read, and I am at a loss to conceive how a man should permit himself to write anything that would be really disgraceful to a woman, or why a woman should be censured for writing anything that would be proper and becoming for a man. Hmm. So basically saying, I, the three bell men are different people, and... If you think you've discovered that I'm a woman, so what? What's the point? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't know that I have a response. Is that the same opening where she talks about that? Uh, I, I pulled this quote that she wished to tell the truth for truth always conveys its own moral to those who are able to receive it. Yes. this is That is the, the intro. And... um yeah, to represent a bad thing in its least offensive light is doubtless the most agreeable course for a writer of fiction to pursue, but is it the most honest or the safest? Is it better to reveal the snares and pitfalls of life to the young and thoughtless traveler or to cover them with branches and flowers? Oh, reader, if there were less of this delicate concealment of facts, this whispering peace peace when there is no peace, there would be less of sin and misery to the young of both sexes who are left to wring their bitter knowledge from experience. Hmm. Okay. 
So yeah, there's there's a lot of good stuff in this little intro. Yeah, I I think that kind of reminds me of larger questions that came up stuck in my head from last week's uh Borges episode where one of the characters in the Garden of Forking Paths talked about uh the novel being a less than like noble pursuit like it mm-hmm. was kind of entertainment and on a future show we should definitely make it make an effort when when appropriate to kind of chart where stuff like this falls in the evolution of the novel because i feel like certain types of writing and certain types of fiction go from this period where it's clearly just supposed to be entertainment and authors have to be very sly about what they are working in that might have any sort of like message yeah about having an agenda or whatever yeah and then it's like contrast that with the political essay or the very blatant moral story or you know a religious story or something like that um where when you're just telling a story that has fictional characters about the real world like what are you saying and and are you you know by showing like what she's saying by showing something that people would rather not see we've talked about that a lot on the show mm-hmm. uh are you do are you endorsing that thing or are you just pointing a light at it and say look at this and have feelings about it you know yeah i mean i guess this this age and this is the this will be the last thing i think as we as we close but um like if take charles dickens for example who's writing in in about the same time like this is sort of the age where the novel starts to become about bigger things like like dickens is widely credited with like drawing attention to the plight of the poor yeah of course whatever so like Mm -hmm. he's still telling a story but obviously he has other stuff that he wants to accomplish too Mm -hmm. um and so, yeah, I, I don't know if we can if we can map out the evolution of the novel, but I think there is probably an argument to be to be made, um, especially around this time, of novels and and things becoming about more than more than just the stories, like the face value of the stories, and that that becoming an expected part of them, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. um, versus it being stuck in there. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed this book, Andrew. I'm glad I did too. <laughs> Uh, it took it, me a while to get into it, you know. It's, yeah, it's with any of the stuff that's sufficiently old. It it takes, I don't know, maybe the first five or ten percent of the book to really get into the language and and not and like to really understand what's going on or like to to take in stuff correctly, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that and that always happens whenever you like put it down and pick it back up again too. Right. Yeah. Um, so if you have a favorite Bronte, Bronte, Bronte. Uh, you can, uh, or a favorite pronunciation of whatever I just said, you can write in to tell us what those are. You can use our email address, which is overduepod at gmail.com. Uh, you can use our Twitter or Facebook feeds, which are facebook.com slash overduepod or twitter.com slash overduepod. I want to thank Tony and the, the Couple Things podcast and Veronica and Katie and Jordan and Tim and Albie. Uh, for reaching out to us over Twitter and Facebook in the past week. We are obsessed with big round numbers, and we are really approaching 400 Facebook likes. And that's one of the best ways to stay engaged with the show, because that's where we remember to post everything the most. So head on over to Facebook and help us out, because actually, you know, algorithms and whatnot help other people find the show that way. Andrew, if people wanted to learn more about back episodes or whatever i guess where should they go um i guess whatever they should go to overduepodcast.com which is where we have our back episodes we have links to the books that we have read that we're going to read you can buy on amazon if you want to support the show another great way to support the show is to check out our patreon that's patreon.com slash overduepod um as we've said a few times in in past episodes that's a sort of crowdfunding site where people pledge a certain amount of money per month to keep the lights on, to help us buy books, to help us upgrade our equipment. Um, it's It's been a really amazing response that we've gotten so far. We got a couple new patrons this week, and it's just it's slowly coming in and going up, and it's really gratifying to to see and hear so much from people who who like the show and who want to keep it going. Um, we also, on OverduePodcast.com, 
have links to iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, all those things you can use to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe in iTunes in particular, um, if you could leave us a rating or a review, uh, we would really appreciate it. That helps us rise in the rankings, helps other people find the show. Um, we got one new review this week from Atlas C Grad. That's how I'm going to pronounce that username. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if 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 you do not want to support the show financially or if you just can't and we totally understand, um, that's the best way to help us keep growing, to help us keep the momentum that we've built up in 2015 so far going. Um, Craig, what are you reading next week? Outlander. Who's it by? I don't remember. <laughs> well, you have a lot of work to do between now and next Monday, don't you? <laughs> yep. All right, everybody. Thank you so much prepared. for listening. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will see you next week. And until then, try to be happy.